Well, if you were to tell 2020 Matt Jackson that he would be preaching from a pulpit a couple years later in Greer, South Carolina, uh, I'm not really sure that 2020 Matt Jackson would have had any way of comprehending uh, such an idea. God is incredibly wonderful in his sovereign purposes, and I'm particularly grateful that he's seen fit to bring me and my family uh, to this particular body of believers at Heritage Bible Church. And we love this church, I love this church, and I'm looking forward to in the days and weeks and years to come partnering with you and pointing our young students and our young adults toward the love of Jesus Christ. Well, Robert Kennedy, an American missionary to South America, once visited the the dense jungle of the Amazon. And there he was speaking with a Brazilian native who had recently come to know Christ. And working through the translator, the communication was somewhat strained. So the salvation of this newly converted native was a bit unknown to Kennedy. So through the translator, uh, Kennedy innocently asked the Brazilian, what do you most like to do. Now, Kennedy expected to receive some type of generic answer like hunting with bows and arrows or canoeing, but to his amazement, the native answered simply with this, what he liked most doing was being occupied with God. So, So Kennedy was stunned by this response, really deep, and he asked the question again, something must be lost in translation. But the native gave the same answer. The constant preoccupation of this new believer was quite simply God. He used this occasion to praise and bless the one who had so greatly blessed him. And this ought to be every believer in this room's constant occupation. To be so intimately acquainted with the astounding goodness of God, particularly in his forgiveness of our sin, that our soul would cry out in unending praise. And this is the heartbeat of today's psalm, Psalm 103, engaging in this glorious occupation of worshiping the Lord. If you would grab your copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 103, it's also going to be on the screen behind me, and let's read this Psalm together. Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty one who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works 
in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, as we look at this text, uh, Psalm 103 here, uh, it's written by David, right at the outset here, it says, of David. But unlike uh, many of the Psalms, it doesn't give us a direct context or window into David's life. It's probably a companion Psalm of the one right after it, Psalm 104, in that both of these Psalms begin and end with the refrain, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, some psalms are addressed to God, some psalms are addressed to groups of people, uh, but in this psalm, David is talking to himself. Uh, He's he's giving himself a, a pep talk on how and why his life ought to be marked by the constant worship of the Lord, the one true, living, covenant keeping God. And David, in this passage, refers to God by his covenant name of Yahweh 11 different times. That's the all caps Lord in your Bibles. The special name that God revealed to his chosen people. And this is important as we consider these words in that this psalm is all about Yahweh's worthiness to be worshiped or blessed in light of his commitment to keeping covenant with his people in the provision of forgiveness of sin. And while this psalm builds up to a crescendo, as it were, inviting all of God's creation, including angelic beings, to bless the Lord, it really is primarily David reminding himself and us of the reasons why we ought to constantly and personally engage in worship. Right? We are born to worship. And whether we like it or not, we are always worshiping something. And sadly, right, we we tend to be really, really good at worshiping anything and everything except the one who can truly satisfy our souls. So my prayer is that we consider Psalm 103 today, that uh, we would be helped by rehearsing the specifics of the Lord's astounding and total and comprehensive forgiveness of sin that our souls would be moved to engage afresh in this glorious occupation of joyfully worshiping our Savior. Uh, My outline is is fairly simple. Uh, Two points we're going to work our way through. Number one, uh, two invitations to engage in worship. And then secondly, one benefit that compels our worship. So let's start with these two invitations to engage in worship. Uh, We see an invitation to worship at the beginning of this psalm and then at the back end of this psalm. And David starts in the first two verses with a a personal invitation to himself. Uh, David invites himself to engage in worship. And he invites himself to engage in worship by worshiping the Lord with his whole or entire being. As I mentioned earlier, David is talking to himself here, and he says, self, bless the Lord. Uh, To bless is to worship, to praise, to exalt, to speak well of. And we got to remember, right, this is not something that God needs, that God is sitting there relying upon for his survival. No, When we bless the Lord, we're we're simply reflecting back to him the glory that is innately his, that already belongs to him. And David doesn't just say bless the Lord. He says, bless his holy name. Holy. Everything that is distinct and unique about God. That which makes him separate and different from us. Altogether separate and different from us. Not limited to, but obviously incorporating his utter and righteous perfection. David commands himself to bless this holy name. And hang on to this idea of holy name. It's going to give us a little bit of a tension that's going to be addressed as we work our way through this psalm. And David invites himself to worship the Lord with his whole being, 
All that is within me, bless his holy name. It's a reminder that worship must be with our heart, our mind, our soul, our emotions. Worship must consume all of who we are. And worship can only consume all of who we are as we focus on the God who is worthy of worship. Right? It's not true worship if it doesn't reach down into our soul and even touch our affections. So David invites himself to worship. Worship the Lord with your whole being, David. And then David says, worship the Lord by rehearsing his infinite benefits in verse 2. David tells himself to forget not all his benefits. And literally this is stop forgetting. Self, stop forgetting the Lord's benefits. Live in the reality of who God is and what he's done. There's an echo of Moses' words uh, to the people of Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8. And Jason touched on this last week. Moses tells the people, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." David is reminding himself that he must keep rehearsing these right stories of mercy in order to keep having the fuel he needs to worship the Lord. And we must be in a habit of cataloging God's goodness to us. Uh, The Israelites did this. Right As they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, uh, they took some stones and built them up by the Jordan River as a reminder in the years to come when their children and their grandchildren, who might have forgotten God's wondrous work, would be out playing, wandering around, going on a hike. They would see this pile of stones and ask, Mom, Dad, Grandma, Grandpa, what is this about? And that would then lead to a story of God's mercy of redeeming his people from Egypt. Uh, my mom uh, took this literally in our home, and, and we did this throughout my life growing up. She would uh, collect rocks at the beach and uh, provide them to the family. And when God did uh, wonderful things in our lives, we with a Sharpie would write down specific acts of the Lord with a date, uh, put them in a basket. And then at particular moments, maybe at the end of the year, uh, maybe during a particularly difficult time of trial, we would reflect back on God's goodness to us. We must have a system of remembering God's goodness or we will forget. So David begins here by personally inviting himself to worship. Worship the Lord with your whole being, David. Worship the Lord by rehearsing his infinite benefits. And then at the end of the psalm, uh, David moves into this corporate invitation for worship. And we're going to jump down to the end right now, verses 20 through 22. And, and it's as if worship that is, is flowing from David's own soul then expands out to all parts of creation. In verses 20 and 21, holy angels are called to worship. Right? David commands the host of created sinless beings to engage in worship. And then in verse 22, the rest of creation is called to worship. David commands every aspect of God's created order to engage in worship. So it's not just the redeemed who praise, right? Even sinless angels and the inanimate objects in God's creation are urged to praise. And one commentator noted this, I love this. God is so great that nothing but the praise of all creation will do. But then we don't want to miss this. After this call to corporate worship, 
the very final statement in this psalm, at the end of verse 22, David once again says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So David ends where he started, commanding his own self to personally engage in worship. And it's a reminder that we can only have corporate worship if individuals are worshiping the Lord from the heart. And so after looking at both this personal invitation to worship, this corporate invitation to worship, I then found myself asking the question, what could possibly elicit this type of universal and comprehensive worship? And that question is going to form the basis for the meat of our passage, verses 3 through 19. And for this large section, I've just titled it, The One Benefit That Compels Our Worship. The One Benefit That Compels Our Worship. So I like Tolkien, and I like Lord of the Rings, uh, probably not as much as my predecessor, uh, but I'm a fan. I'm a fan. And there's an inscription on the ring of power that says this, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. So you had this idea of this one ring of power controlling all the other rings of power. Well, as I looked at at this passage uh, and was directed specifically to one core key truth, I thought to myself, right, there's, there's one truth in this passage to rule them all, one truth to remind them, one truth to bring them all, and in true worship, bind them. Right? While our Bibles describe an infinitely worthy God, deserving of infinite worship for an infinite number of reasons, I believe David's clear aim in this passage is to compel himself and us, the people of God, to engage in the glorious occupation of worship as we keep on remembering the Lord's comprehensive and total forgiveness of sin. If you join me in looking at verse 12 in Psalm 103, I believe this to be the the pinnacle, the apex, as it were, of this psalm. And in verse 12, David says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He removes our transgressions from us. Uh, Transgression, this is the idea of going away from, departing from, rebelling against, defying against. And we know that from the moment of of Adam's fall in, in Genesis 3, The great question of the Bible has simply been this. How can a sinful people, marred by transgression, dwell with a holy God? And remember that tension I said at the outset. David commanded his soul to bless the holy name of the Lord. Our Lord is altogether perfect in his holiness. How can we dwell with that God? Well, David answers this question with really, I think, which one of the the great statements of the scriptures. He, the Lord, removes our transgressions from us. The Lord removes our transgressions from us. We don't atone for our sins. We don't make ourselves acceptable in his sight. And as we're going to see today, the people of God can only approach God on the basis of his act, his act, in removing their sin. And there's no greater motivation for worship than this, the complete and total forgiveness of sin. And it's through the lens of this truth, this comprehensive forgiveness, that I would like us to consider all the benefits that we see in Psalm 103. So in these first uh, three verses here, verses three through five, I've kind of titled this little subsection, the layers of total forgiveness, Uh, the facets, as it were, to this total forgiveness. And it starts in verse three, speaking of the Lord, the Lord forgives all our iniquity, right? Iniquity, being wicked 
and immoral in character that leads to sin. Uh, Psalm 51.5, we know this. We were brought forth in iniquity. We sin because we are born sinners. Uh, We have inherited Adam's DNA, as it were. And every human is born in iniquity. Every human is born in sin, deserving of God's holy wrath. And without the forgiveness of sin, nothing else in life truly matters. Without the forgiveness of sin, life is hopeless. We spend a lot of time thanking and worshiping and praising God for the material benefits in our lives. And we ought to do that. That is good. But as Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his soul? And notice in this layer of the Lord forgiving all our iniquity, notice the word all. That means everything. All. Not a certain list of sins, but all kinds of sins. Not a finite number of sins, but all number of sins. And not a special person's sins, but the sins of all types of people. Total forgiveness removes the guilt of every single sin. But then there's another layer in verse 3. The Lord heals all our diseases. The Lord heals our diseases, all our diseases. And in the context of this passage, this is best seen, I believe, as an already and a not yet healing. Right? In order to have a relationship with a holy God, we must be healed from the disease of sin. And David knew this. Right? In Psalm 32, he graphically describes the draining physical effects of sin on his body before he received the Lord's forgiveness. And ultimately, we know that sickness and disease are a result of sin. And David is looking forward to that day when in the new creation, there will no longer be any sin. God's people will be healed from all forms of disease at that time. So while God has made a way for us to enjoy the spiritual benefit of total forgiveness right now, today, We look forward to the day when total forgiveness will comprehensively extend to every aspect of our physical experience. God's people will be made new, no longer dogged by the mar of illness and disease. Total forgiveness removes all the effects of sin. And then in verse 4, another layer, the Lord redeems us from the pit. Right? Sin results in death, both a physical death that has brought humanity to the grave since Adam, and an eternal death that results in eternal punishment and separation from a holy God. Right? David is speaking here to a people whose warfare is over, whose sins are forgiven, whose diseases are healed. These are those who can be spoken of as being redeemed from the pit. And the word used for pit here stands in parallel with that concept of sheol, the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. David is suggesting that the redemption of life from the pit is actually a resurrection to life from the grave. Total forgiveness, total forgiveness brings resurrection to life and redemption to life from eternal destruction, the pit. Later on in verse four, we see the layer of the Lord crowning us with his steadfast love. Now this steadfast love, it's God's loyal, unchanging, unending, covenant love, special love for his chosen people. And it's because of the Lord's steadfast love that all of these benefits are given to his people, especially the total forgiveness of sin. His steadfast love is mentioned in verse 8, in verse 11, in verse 17. Right? On our best day, on our best day, we would not even come close to being worthy of the Lord's forgiveness. 
It's his steadfast love that pursues us. It's his steadfast love that chooses us. It's his steadfast love that crowns us in spite of us. This total forgiveness results from the Lord's steadfast love. And finally here in verse five, it says the Lord satisfies us with good. God satisfies his children with good to benefit us and to enhance us so that we can be renewed. We ask ourselves the question, well, well, what is good? What is our highest good? Well, our highest good is to know and have relationship with this holy God who is all-satisfying in his goodness. Earlier today, we heard the scripture, Psalm 34 read, taste and see the Lord is good. Those who seek him lack no good thing. In your presence, the Lord's presence is fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. So total forgiveness of sin permits and allows fallen, broken humanity to experience the ultimate good that we were created for, relationship with the one, true, eternal, ever-living God. Now, all these benefits that we read about in verses 3, 4, and 5 are connected to the comprehensive forgiveness of sin and are rooted in the Lord's glorious character. And now the text is going to turn our attention to this Lord of total forgiveness. The Lord of total forgiveness. And in verses 6 through 19, we're going to see a number of different aspects of God's character in which this total forgiveness flows from or stems from. Verses 6 and 7, the Lord is a rescuer. Our God is a rescuer. It says in verse 6 that God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. And this literally means he works right decisions for the afflicted. Now, David, the author of this psalm, was the king of God's old covenant people. And in remembering this and thinking of this, he's reflecting back to God's great act of redeeming his afflicted people from their slavery in Egypt. And God rescued his people, the Israelites, knowing, and this blows my mind, knowing that they would subsequently and really quickly forget his redemptive work and turn to idols and sin. And there's this cycle of of redemption that we see all throughout the Old Testament. God would rescue, his people would forget that rescue turn to sin. God in his holiness would punish that sin. The people would repent, cry out. God would rescue again and again and again. And we see sort of a rinse and repeat of this cycle throughout the Old Testament. But the truth of God's heart to provide total forgiveness, I believe, is is clearly seen in this relationship with the nation of Israel. He knew they would rebel against him, and yet he rescued them anyway. Our Lord is a rescuing God, and the deliverance of his people and his desire to tabernacle or dwell with them is a foreshadowing of how one day, one day, he would provide a way for sinners to be totally and completely rescued from their sin that he might personally dwell with them. But our Lord isn't just a rescuer. Our Lord is merciful and gracious. In verse 8, we read this famous statement that became a creed for the people of God throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, what's amazing is that this portrayal of the Lord... This portrayal of his character was given by the Lord himself to Moses immediately following one of these treacherous, hard-to-understand rebellions of God's people in the 
creating of a golden calf to worship instead of the Lord. And immediately following this, Moses is with the Lord. And uh, we read in Exodus 34, 6, Moses has asked the Lord to show himself to him. And the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the Lord, right after this deviation of the people from worshiping him, the Lord pronounces to Moses, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's steadfast in his love. And something that I hadn't seen before, but the Lord, his spirit kind of brought to my heart and mind in studying this, you look a couple of verses later in verse 9 of Exodus 34, and look at what Moses, how he responds to this revelation of God as a merciful and gracious Lord. He says in verse 9, Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, this is Moses speaking, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So on the basis of God's merciful and gracious nature, in light of this horrific sin, Moses made this audacious request of God, pardon us, dwell with us. And it was God's holy character and his nature of being merciful and gracious that Moses appealed to. As I said, this became a creed uh, for the people of Israel at various points in their history. They would remember this and pray this back to God, whether it be as they were awaiting exile, in exile, returning from exile, appealing to the Lord's gracious and merciful and abundance of steadfast love for them, his people. And the next few verses in Psalm 103 kind of flesh out the specifics of this merciful and gracious nature, kind of put feet to it. Verse 9 says, the Lord will not always chide. I sometimes find myself chiding with my kids more than I should. Uh, To chide is to dispute, to strive with, to find fault with. The Lord has every right in his holiness to find fault with his people. But we're told here that he won't. He won't keep that anger towards sin forever. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, right? We know that if God dealt with us according to our sin, none would be saved. But in his loving kindness, God chooses not to deal with his people on the basis of their sin. And then in 11 and 12, uh, as I look at this, I, I, I see infinite distances describing infinite love and forgiveness, Verse 11 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So I did a little research, and uh, according to uh, one uh, source that I studied, the, the furthest star that has been accounted for is 13 billion light years away. I, I don't even know what that means. It's really, 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 really far. It's an immeasurable distance. Like we pretend like we can measure that. We can't. We can't. Just like we can't measure the greatness of his love for us. And then in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, That is how far he removes our transgressions from us. So if you think about it, and I I played around with these ideas for a little bit, if you think about it, if if you are constantly going west, I'm not sure if that's west, pretend that it is. If you're constantly going west, you'll never go east. Or if you're constantly going east, you'll never 
go west. And, and since east and west are directions, but not specific points on a map, there's an infinite and indescribable and incalculable distance between east and west. Now, one commentator said this, I love this, however many miles you think lie between east and west, you cannot look two ways at once. You have to turn your back on one in order to look in the direction of the other. When God forgives us, he puts our sin and us on two different horizons. So when he looks at our sin, he is no longer looking at us. And when he looks at us, he is no longer looking at our sin. Now, David, prior to the cross, probably had in mind uh, the Day of Atonement from Leviticus chapter 16, right? This annual ritual of the people of Israel where one goat would be slaughtered for the sins of the people and the blood of that goat would be taken into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God to make atonement for the people while the other goats, at the scapegoat, would have the sins of the people pronounced on its head and then be taken out of the camp and released into the wilderness. It's symbolizing the people of God being able to dwell with him on the basis of this atonement and their sins being carried away, separated from them, separated from their account. But these animal sacrifices of the old covenant were simply a foreshadowing of the once-for-all atonement of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away fully and once-for-all the sins of his people and inaugurate a new covenant through the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 says this, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right For those who are the Lord's people, who are in Christ by faith, the condemnation and the judgment for sin is finished. It's done. Because the Lord's holy name was satisfied in the suffering of the sinless Jesus Christ. And why is it finished? Right? Why is it finished? Why can we say it is finished? Well, God treated Christ as if he had committed all of our covenant-breaking sin that we who believe might be treated as if we committed all of Christ's covenant-keeping righteousness. And this transaction, this, this great exchange, lasts forever on the people of God. Our Lord is merciful our Lord is gracious, and the provision of this total and complete forgiveness of sin in the Lord Jesus Christ is an outworking of his nature. Verses 13 and 14, we see that the Lord is compassionate. It just keeps getting better. David moves from these indescribable distances to the intimacy of family. So, so just as an earthly father has compassion for his kids, how much more does our heavenly Father have compassion for us in our weakness, in our sin, right? He knows our origin. He knows our stock. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we're prone to wandering and struggling. And yet, in his compassion, knowing our broken condition, he's made provision for us. Provision for this brokenness in the total and complete forgiveness of sin. 
And then verses 15 through 18, we see that the Lord is eternal in his love. The Lord is eternal in his love. In 15 and 16, we see our frail and transitory nature being compared to spring flowers that sprout up. And then when it gets hot and the wind blows, they die. But by contrast, while we are quickly dying and disappearing, the Lord's steadfast love and covenantal love for his children is eternal. Verse 17 says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. It's unending. It doesn't stop. It keeps going and going and going. And that idea is expounded upon a little bit in the next statement. His steadfast love that never ends, his righteousness to children's children. Now, now this is not righteousness that is automatically given to the children of believers. What it is, is just a visual pictorial way of describing this unending continuation of God's covenant love for his chosen people from eternity past into eternity future. It never stops. And then we read, it's to those, this steadfast love is to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, right? This eternal love is only for those who keep his covenant and do his commandments. Now, that's not us. That's one person. That's Jesus Christ. So the those being spoken of here are those who have received Christ's forgiveness purchased at the cross, those who have received Christ's righteousness and by faith are in him, the one who kept the covenant for his people. And we have to note, obedience is a wonderful thing. Obedience is worship to our Lord But obedience, the ability to keep and do his commandments, is a result of being forgiven, not a means of gaining or obtaining forgiveness. Our Lord is eternal in his love for his children, and nothing can ever change his declaration of total and complete forgiveness of sin. And then verse 19, the Lord is king says here that his throne is in the heavens. This places his rule and his reign far above us, mortal fallen creatures. As scripture is clear, our God is in the heavens and he does what pleases him. And I'm comforted by this thought. We ought to be comforted by this thought that since our Lord is totally in control of everything, we can rest in the promise that his goodness and steadfast love will follow us all the days of our life. Our Lord is king. He's powerfully working to bring about his kingdom in the lives of those who've experienced his total and complete forgiveness of sin. Now, after reflecting on these truths of of God's nature, uh, I must, and I think we must, humbly admit one simple truth. Our forgiveness is completely a work of God from start to finish. In Adam, humanity failed to maintain God's holy standard and plunged into relationship-altering sin. A holy God could not be in the presence of sinful man. But God's promise in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, of a curse-breaking seed of Eve, set in motion this plan which the Father, Son, and Spirit had planned in eternity past, the possibility of a restored relationship with a holy God based solely on his eternal love for sinners like you and like me. And he keeps this covenant of love and rescues us forgetful, vile, 
rebellious, dusty humans according to his grace, mercy, and compassion. And note, it's his mercy, grace, and compassion. Not our faithfulness, not our obedience, not our worthiness. And that's a really, really good thing. Moses and David and the old covenant saints experienced this in a veiled way. As, as God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and then through the temple in a priestly system of sacrifices and rituals. But at the cross, the justice of a perfectly holy God was fully satisfied in the sacrifice of a perfectly holy new Adam. The Lord eternally has ruled and will rule over all. He doesn't need anything from us. He needs nothing from us. And yet he's chosen to rescue us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the forgiveness that he offers to us, this total and comprehensive and full forgiveness is through the sacrifice of Christ. And our salvation, if we really think about this fully, it begins, it ends with the Lord. And it's predicated upon his forgiveness of our sin through Christ. And that, Christian, should fill us, fill us to the brim with joy in worshiping our great saving God. And so in conclusion, I'd like to uh, make a proposition, and, and I would propose that what David is suggesting to us in this psalm, Psalm 103, is that our capacity to bless the Lord like he calls us to is proportionate to our understanding of this benefit of the total forgiveness of sin. Moses and David got it, even though they lived prior to the cross and only glimpsed a shadow of what was to come. The question is, do we, having the benefit of living this side of the cross, do we get it? Do we get it? And at the end, it's important to remind ourselves of who this benefit of total forgiveness is for. The text says it's for those who fear him. So not for everyone, but for those who fear him, his chosen people. And it's not for the perfect. Think about it. As the benefit is forgiveness, it's intended for those who are imperfect. Those who fear him then are those who recognize the holiness of God, recognize their wretched sinful condition, and cry out to God for this total forgiveness that was purchased at the cross. And if you're here today and you're not his child through faith in Christ, you will have no desire to bless this Lord because you have not experienced the benefit of total forgiveness and your sin separates you from God. You need Jesus to forgive your sin and transform your life and bring you from death to life. And this Lord of forgiveness described in this passage, is ready and willing to forgive any and all of your sin. There is no sin too great. There is no number of sins too many that wasn't paid for at the cross. And after the service today, you could talk to anyone here, talk to me about that truth. But, but here's the exciting part, right? Child of God, you who are counted as one who fears him because of your connection to Christ, your covenant keeper, I, like David, would, you, would urge you, urge you to be purposeful in remembering the astounding and total forgiveness the Lord has provided that your soul might find its supreme joy in blessing his holy name. There's going to be a lot of fireworks lighting up the sky over the next few weeks. I was trying to go to bed early last night to uh, wake up fresh today, and there were a lot of fireworks going off in my neighborhood. I'm not sure why. 
But as we consider these glorious displays of light and sound that we see in the sky, I want us to consider, as I close, the fireworks of benefit that have exploded in your life, child of God, all related to the total and complete forgiveness of sin. Listen to this. Our glorious God has removed your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. Though your sins were as scarlet, he has made you and washed you white as snow. Though your sins deserve judgment, he has chosen to abundantly pardon you. Though your sins left you stained, he has blotted them out. Though you were dead in your sins, he made you alive. Though your sins brought condemnation, he's given you peace with himself. Though your sins should never leave you, he chooses to remember your lawless deeds no more. Though your sins ought to cry out against you, he's cast them down to the depths of the sea. Though your sins left an unpayable debt, he's canceled the debt and considered it paid in full. Though your sins would weigh you down, he has given you rest. Though your sins made you his enemy, he has made you his friend. Though you were vile and unworthy, he laid down his life for you. Though you fell spectacularly short of his glory, he's made you a partaker in his glory. And though you were in the domain of darkness, he's transferred you into the kingdom of light. All of these benefits of total and complete and absolute forgiveness are yours in and through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So David wants us to soak in the manifold grace of God moment by moment, day by day, dousing our minds again and again with the joyful reality of total forgiveness. And as a church, it's my prayer that our fellowship with one another would be predicated upon this commitment to help each other forget not all his benefits, specifically the benefit of comprehensive forgiveness. And when we do this well, we will be what God intends us to be, a people engaged in the glorious occupation of worship for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Lord, your word is clear. We deserve your holy wrath. Yet you, in your merciful and gracious nature, have made a way for us to be forgiven. Total, complete, absolute forgiveness. Lord, what a joy that because of this forgiveness, purchased through Christ, we can have relationship with you. May we right now abound in worship and might our lives abound in worship because of this glorious truth. We're forgiven, we're pardoned, and we can have relationship with you. In Christ's name, amen.